Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. And we're just getting started, of course, into our study in the book of Philippians. This is our third lesson. And we're talking about this church that Paul established on his second missionary journey. This is the first place where the gospel was preached on the continent of Europe. And uh, Paul established these church, this church there. And usually he would, he would work in a place like Philippi, as I mentioned on, uh, in the Sunday night service, because this was a town that was located on a, a very important trade route. And so when he would win people to Christ there, they would in turn travel to other parts of the empire, and they would be witnesses of the gospel of Christ. Philippi is actually one of the unique churches that Paul founded, because as, we, as he writes this letter, we see that he doesn't do what he normally does in the letters that he's writing to the churches. There, there isn't anything uh, concerning strong rebuke here or any doctrinal errors. And many times, that's what Paul's letters are about. They're uncovering problems in the church and trying to correct those. But this is not like that. It's not like the multiple problems that were found in the church at Corinth that we've been studying on Sunday morning. It's not like the churches of Galatia where they had uh, doctrinal divisions over legalism. This is not like the church at Ephesus where Paul said to them that very soon there are grievous wolves that will enter in, not sparing the flock. He didn't warn them about that in this church. It's not like the church at Colossae. And that was another one that was beginning into some doctrinal errors. But what we have here really seems to be just a rock-solid good church that Paul's writing to. And uh, he has some very fond memories of these people. And that might help us to understand better why he writes verse number 6. That's the topic of our discussion tonight. There was a good work that was begun in Philippi, both in the souls of the people who received Christ and in the church in general. And Paul's confidence, as we see it in this letter, is that God will continue that work. God will bring it to its full fruition. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6, is perhaps one of the most important verses that we have in the Bible. We're going to read that. Let's stand, please. We're going to study just this one verse tonight. As a matter of fact, we have three sermons that we're going to preach on this one verse uh, Philippians 1, verse 6, and let's just do this. Everybody read this out loud with me, if you would. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this great verse that we have in the Bible. And Lord, as I preach the message tonight, help us to put first and foremost in our minds that whatever has begun in us as far as salvation is concerned, whatever is finished in us, and whatever works all the way through concerning salvation is all because of you. Nothing in us. So we ask you, Lord, to bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 6 is the key verse of Philippians. You might want to write that in the margin of your Bible. If you want to know what all of the discussion centers on, it can all be boiled down right to this key verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. This is the purpose for Philippians. God began a good work, and God will complete his work, and God who brings salvation to us, once you get saved, all of the rest of your life, God is fitting you and preparing you for eternal life. Now, the subject of this verse is the perseverance of God's people. Now, this is what we're going to talk about tonight. 
But before we actually get into an explanation of the verse, there's some things that I need to tell you about. Um, there, there's some things that we need to get out of the way first because we need to correct some complete misunderstandings about this doctrine of perseverance. There are many of our Baptist brethren who misunderstand what we mean by perseverance, and some of them go so far as to say perseverance is not taught in the Bible. And in their zeal to refute all of the doctrines of grace and cast all of that on the dunghill of perversions, in the process of doing that, they leave out or they destroy one of the clearest, most important of all biblical doctrines. Now, I believe that some of that, for some people, is deliberate misinformation because they don't like the doctrine. But I'm going to be a little bit more charitable than that. Than that, I'm going to say something less. Perhaps they're in willful ignorance about this. Now, I don't know how to do this, but to be very plain about my objections. So what I want to do is, is read a statement that was made last year by John Getch in the Baptist Voice paper that's published by the Lancaster Baptist Church. Now, let me say this first. I have no bones to pick with Lancaster Baptist Church or with John Getch. What I want to do is correct misinformation. And the reason I'm doing this is because this is a public piece and a public paper that was sent out to many, many different Baptist churches and others with wrong information in it. And that's why I want to tell you about it tonight. Now, John Getch said that perseverance means this. And he attributes the doctrine of perseverance that, that he says this is what it means. That even though one has faith, he can never have assurance that his faith is true, sovereign grace faith. Perhaps he is not really one of the elect. And then he goes on to say that those who teach perseverance, and I'm quoting again, that one must persevere with his faith and good works, and that salvation is never assured. Now I want to say that is nothing, there's nothing further from the truth than that statement. And I would like to know where you could find someone who teaches the doctrines of grace as we do in this church, any person who believes that, who, who makes that kind of a statement, because that is antithetical to the whole doctrines of grace, and those who believe the doctrines of grace absolutely do not believe that statement. Now, I want to read to you what James Montgomery Boyce wrote on Philippians 1, verse 6. He's one of the leading proponents of the doctrines of grace. And he wrote, There are many people who do not like this teaching because they like to think human beings are responsible for their own salvation. They prefer to believe that we can be accepted by God on the basis of our good works or the use of sacraments and that our final salvation depends more or less on how faithful or persevering we can be. This is not biblical and it's contradicted by every moment of the Christian experience with God. Now, I want to point out that John Getch does not believe himself the statement that I just made, but Boyce categorically denies John Getch's interpretation of perseverance, saying that that's what we believe. So you better watch out when someone tries to define your doctrine for you, because it's very clear that what he says about perseverance is not what the real doctrine is. That's not what we believe. But this thing even gets worse than that. Uh, here's what another fundamentalist Baptist preacher wrote, and I believe he distributed this information even in our neighborhoods. Uh, I guess he didn't, like the, he didn't like the word perseverance, and so he used preservation of the saints, which is actually not the same thing. It's a companion doctrine, so he doesn't even have the terminology right. But he said this, 
preservation of the saints, not to be confused with the eternal security of the born-again believer in Jesus Christ, whereby the elect are preserved from committing gross sin. So this man says that perseverance of the saints means, and now he's mislabeled it as preservation, but he, he says it means that the elect of God will never fall into gross sin. And he claims that is a doctrine that we believe. That is also a perversion of this doctrine. Now, I want to read to you from the most widely used Baptist confession of faith in the, in the historical founding of our country. This is the Philadelphia Confession of Faith that was wrote, written in 1742. It is the Baptist Confession of Faith, and as I said, almost without exception, all of the churches in our country ascribe to this particular confession of faith. And the Philadelphia Confession of Faith states under an article entitled, The Perseverance of the Saints, and I want you to notice they have no problem with the terminology and no problem with the word perseverance. This article says this about it. Now, I want you to pay attention to me. It's rather lengthy, and I don't want you to get lost in it, but it's well worth reading and well worth you listening to. The Philadelphia Confession of Faith of 1742, Baptist Confession of Faith, those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence he still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon. Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession they being engraven upon the palms of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from which ariseth also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. And, and this is an important paragraph, all of it's important, but listen, and though they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now, contrary to what this preacher said, perseverance has never been taught by those who believe in the doctrines of grace to believe that the elect cannot fall into gross sin. In fact, some of you may even know Christians that have fallen into terrible sins, and yet they've come back to God. And this is exactly 
what this, this, this confession of faith says. They will never finally fall away and lose their salvation, and a truly regenerate person will be renewed to repentance. And so when Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ, what he very clearly means there is God always finishes what he starts. And this is so important, and we're going to point it out as we go through, because God is the one who starts it. And so the hope of Paul and for these Philippian Christians that he's writing to, the thing that gives them their hope in the midst of persecution is that God is still there, God will always be there, God is always with them, and God will finish the work that he began of their salvation, and they will finally reach heaven. Now, interestingly, the article that follows up this particular article that I just read from in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, the article that comes right after it happens to be entitled Of the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. So John Getch said that We believe that salvation is never assured. But here you have this great Baptist, old Baptist confession of faith that believes and teaches all of the doctrines of grace all the way through it, and it says that we are absolutely assured of our salvation. And the last words of that next article are this, that we are preserved from despair. And that's what Paul's writing to the Philippians. And this is why Philippians is such a great book and why this verse is so important. God preserves us from despair, which means we cannot lose our salvation. There's nothing that's going to happen to us. God is always going to be there for us. So the Bible absolutely does teach perseverance. This is what Paul's preaching in Philippians 1.6. So again, I'm telling you, don't let other people define your doctrine because when they do, they might make statements about things that you actually do not believe and they may put that misinformation out there and that's exactly why I say that we need to correct it and that's why I say something about it. That's my introduction. Now we're going to get down to the teaching of this verse. What is it talking about? Well, notice again what he says. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with this. Part number one of our message concerns the beginning of the work. The beginning of the work. Now, Paul was certainly a remarkable man. Many, many ways, Paul was so remarkable. And I just talking with, I think it was Mary Jane, just before services started tonight. And she was talking about the Apostle Paul and how she just so admires Paul. Well, he was truly a remarkable man. I mean, here, here is a person who was the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen. He, he was very learned. He was, a, he was a master of biblical text. He had supernatural abilities where he could speak in different languages and he could interpret different languages. And yet he never speaks or does anything less than give all the glory to God. If you were to hear Paul come and speak at a conference of preachers, there is no possible way that Paul would ever allow someone to give up and get, uh, get up and give an introduction to him that talked about all of his great accomplishments and all the things that he did. Paul would never allow that. Paul would not have been a man like many preachers that we have today who write their books where it seems like they must be God's right-hand man. Paul wouldn't do that. Paul talks to these people about the people in Philippi and to them, and he never says here, I founded the church... And he doesn't start by referring about all the wonderful things of witnessing and all the many things that he did in Philippi. Now, if you remember this story, Paul didn't even want to go to Philippi. 
I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16 for just a minute, and we're going to look at the reason why Paul ended up in Philippi. Now, Paul was on his way someplace else at the time. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse number 6. He just finished preaching in Derbe and Lystra, and there's where he found Timothy. Uh, he was establishing churches, and now then he was ready to move on. Look at verse number 6. Luke's recording the story here. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now, you see what's happening here. Paul wanted to go preach in Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him from going there. And then he decides, well, we'll go to Bithynia. But then the Holy Spirit won't let him go there either. Verse number 8. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Now, of course, that's where Philippi is located. And after he had seen the vision, immediately... We endeavored, that's Luke writing, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So you see here who starts things? Paul had no intentions at all of going to Philippi. But then he gets this vision in the night. The Holy Spirit appears to, or tells him through this vision, you have got to go preach in Macedonia. And so would you expect now that Paul would say to the, to the Philippian people, this was such a great idea that I had to come over and preach to you and get a church started here. The first church started on the, on the continent of Europe. You think Paul's going to do that? Well, he doesn't. And he doesn't pat himself on the back and say, look at all the converts that I won over there in Philippi. Look at all the people that I've won, won to the Lord. Not like so many of the so-called soul winners today that, you know, they take their belt and they put a notch in it for every soul that they've won. Paul's not doing that. I mean, just think back on the conversions that he makes in Philippi. There's Lydia, the peddler of purple. And, and she's a, a one, a, a great example, and perhaps the best that we have in the Bible, of how the God opens up a person's heart, and he, and he gives them the gospel so that they can understand it. Then there was another convert, the, the divining damsel. And that was that young lady who had a spirit of divination, and Paul cast a demon out of her. Then there's that jittery jailer. You remember, he's the one that, that, uh, that washed Paul and Silas' stripes, that in the middle of the night, he asked the only place in the Bible where we have a point-blank question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? These are the people that Paul won. Paul did a great work of evangelism in Philippi. He built a great work there. They were commendable for their service to God. They helped Paul in his missionary endeavors. But Paul never mentions the work that he did. Instead, he starts where it really all began. He says, he, and there he means God, he hath begun a good work in you. Somehow that seems to be forgotten today. Somehow in preaching, the emphasis is no longer on God. The emphasis is on the soul winners. And the emphasis is on the preacher who by some kind of trick or mastery or manipulation can get people to walk down aisles and they can claim great converts for Christ. But Paul doesn't do that. Now, let me interpret this doctrine that so many of our Baptist fellows and fellow preachers believe. Let me interpret it for you, because they sure like to interpret our doctrine. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit has complete control over salvation. Recently, uh, I had one of our missionary questionnaires that came back to me. 
whenever somebody wants to come and present a work as a missionary in Berean Baptist, they have a seven or eight page, maybe nine page questionnaire that they have to fill out that gives us their doctrinal positions and tells us a little bit about what they believe. One of the questions that we ask on this is, do you believe in the total depravity and total inability of the sinner? This young man answered the question this way. Now, he didn't really answer the question that we asked, but he answered the question this way. He said, I believe man has a free will. And that's the answer to his question. I believe that man has a free will too. I absolutely do believe that. But I believe that the free will of man always leads him in one direction. That's towards sin. Man is a sinner. And he'll always do that. That's always the direction that he's going to go. Now, this young man believed that man was not so radically altered by the fall that when Adam fell, that man did not lose the ability to respond in righteousness to God. In other words, it doesn't take the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to actually start it. You can believe without the Holy Spirit's enabling work. So they leave the Holy Spirit out of this. Now, that seems to be a contradiction of what Paul says here in Philippians 1 verse 6. It's a contradiction to the conversion of Lydia that we find back in the, in the book of Acts, this convert at Philippi. And so, in effect, they're, they're, uh, Paul says, or Paul says nothing to this effect, that I started the work. We, we've already shown that. He never says, I started the work. And certainly, he wouldn't say to them, you started the work. God starts the work. Now, we like to argue about this. I mean, seriously. People like to argue about this. And, and this group over here says that when the gospel is preached, that it's up to you. You decide whether you're going to accept it, you're going to take it or leave it. And whatever you decide to do, and really that's really what that is, that's just you starting the work. Whatever, whenever you decide to do it, then you can become a Christian. We argue about that. But the Bible doesn't argue about it at all. The Bible's very clear, very concise on this point. God starts the work. God's the one who does it, and God always starts the work, and nobody but God ever will start the work. And God doesn't start a work in a person's heart by opening him, his mind and his heart up to the gospel of Christ and leave that work half done. When he starts the work, he completes it. God takes his word, and he accomplishes what he wants his word to accomplish. And remember when we talked about this in Ephesians 6, verse 17? There, Paul writes... Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And from there we went to uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. And there the Bible says that the Word will not return to him void, but he says, it will accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper there in the thing thereunto that I've sent it. And so when the Holy Spirit starts to open up the heart to the gospel, like he did with Lydia, that Word will always accomplish God's purpose. Lydia believed. Because God started the work and then God performed the work. So there's really no argument here. There's no space here for us to argue about who's doing this. It's God who does it. So you can believe all you want that your free will begins the work and that your belief starts the work, but you've got that wrong. Because before you ever believed, God had started a regenerating work so that you could believe. And that's because man is lost in sins. Now, let's notice then how the work begins. How does God begin a work in us? Well, first of all, we are awakened to our condition. See, there's something wrong with you. And there was something wrong with you all the way back to the very beginning. You weren't busy going around church to church looking for God. And you weren't thinking one day, well, here I am. I'm a hell-bound lost sinner. And if I don't do something about this, I'm going to die and go to hell. 
You're not out there running God down. Nobody does that. Nobody's out here asking, uh, tackling God by his ankles and trying to get him to save them. The Scripture says none seek God. All of us are gone out of the way. But the problem is nobody understands what their true condition is. Now, I'm concerned uh, uh, as, far, as far as I'm concerned and as far as you're concerned. Things are pretty good the way that they are. I like my life. I like things that are going on with me. And when something goes wrong, God's not. I'm talking about the natural man. God's not my first option. Now, if I get into really serious trouble, I may say, God, help me. Pray to God and ask God to do something for me. I heard just, just recently, and there's nobody gets closer to God than a person who's sick. That's when they start asking God to really help them. Well, the thing about it is that I, I might do that when I'm, when I'm in big, big trouble. But I, I don't mean that. As a natural man, I absolutely do not mean that I'm going to surrender my life to God. And now, when it's all over with, I'm going to walk in holiness and righteousness. That just doesn't happen. It's because I don't understand my condition. I, I don't really know what's wrong with me. But God knows precisely what's wrong with us. You know what's wrong with us? We're dead. Dead in trespasses and sin. A lost person has no sensibility to this because he's spiritually dead. Now, our good fundamental brothers really don't think that dead means dead. They think when the Scripture says dead that that means, oh, there's still some spark of life in you. And some of, it will go, some of them will go so far to say, well, there's still a seed of faith in you. There's a seed of faith in you that's alive, and it's not dead. Well, you know what's really peculiar? I've never anybody, seen anybody describe degrees of dead. When you go to the funeral home and you've got a body stretched out there, you don't go to the mortician and say, how dead is he? You understand dead is dead. Death means cessation of life. I mean, there's no, no life there at all. There's no such thing as being partially dead. Dead means no life. And so these folks would need to interpret or read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, this way. And you hath he quickened who were partially alive. You hath he quickened who had a little seed of faith left in you. That's not what it says. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. So spiritually dead people are not expected to respond to anything. It can't happen. Now, maybe some preacher that I don't know about has figured out how you can extract life out of dead material. I haven't figured it out yet. So here's what I know. God must first awaken the spiritually dead. That's what we call regeneration. He awakens us to our condition. So when the Holy Spirit comes and he wakes up the dead sinner, then that person realizes that he's without God. He now realizes that he's on his way to hell. But you know something? That's not enough. It's, it's not enough to know that you're without God and you're on the way to hell because you're still a sinner. And somebody tells you, well, you're without God. So what? I'm without God. Maybe I realize it now, but so what? So God has to do, no, do more. Now understand what I'm saying here is not, not taking place over long periods of time. This is like this in an instant. But I, I'm trying to break it down for you what happens when God regenerates a person. So the first thing he does, he awakens the sinner to his condition. But he has to go further than that. Because next, he has to create a desire. That's the second thing. Desire is created. You see, here's the thing, this thing about telling people, well, well, uh, here's salvation. You can take it or leave it. It's all up to you. The problem is they have no desire for it. 
So you can take that carrot of salvation and you can dangle it in front of a lost person 24 hours a day, 24-7, hang it out there in front of him and he will never desire it. The natural man does not desire the things of God. Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2.14, read it and read it and read it. The natural man does not desire the things of God. So what this is like is like going over to Africa and uh, taking a lion out of Africa and bringing him downtown Santa Rosa to the farmer's market. And there you have all these cucumbers and vegetables and tomatoes and the corn, the peppers and all those good vegetables and stuff. And you say to the lion, here you go. Dig in, lion. Lion's not going to eat that. It's not his nature to eat that. He doesn't have any desire for that kind of food. In fact, he's more interested in you than he is in the farmer's market. And he might even decide to take something that tastes a little bit funny, like Siegfried and Roy, and try eat Roy and eat that first. He's not interested in fruits and vegetables because it's not his nature. And this is the way it is with the lost sinner. He has no desire. And so what the Holy Spirit must do to him, he must create the desire in him. Now, your free will will never bring you to that point. A sinful free will will never bring you to the point that you desire Christ. And what you could do, you can take your clothes off and run naked through the clover. And you'll never, you could be so free that you could do that. And it'll never create a desire. It doesn't translate into a desire for Christ. You don't have it and you never will have it until God creates the desire in you. So this young man who filled out that missionary questionnaire, he says, I believe in free will. That's wonderful. Believe in free will. Have at it. But here's the thing. Nobody is going to be saved simply by their will. You do not choose God. God chooses you. And the only way that you will ever choose God is because he first came to you and began a work in you. But that's still not enough. Now we're awake. We understand our condition. Now we have the desire for salvation. But we're not quite there yet. We're still in the beginning stages. We have to have something else. And so God does something else. Now, if all you have is you're awakened and you have a desire, that's not enough. Everything's building here. Philippians 1, 6 is building. God began the work and God is going to perform this work. You didn't start it and you can't finish it. There's got to be another step. And what this is, is the revelation of Christ. Praise God for the revelation of Christ. If God stopped by waking you up and creating desire in you, you know what the first thing that you would do? You'd be awakened to your condition, you have a desire to be saved, and the first thing that you would do is run around like a chicken with its head cut off trying to figure out how you're going to get to heaven. You've got to figure out some way to take care of this condition. Now, like our fundamental brothers believe, what's going to happen, if you do that, you're going to end up with self-salvation. Now, let me point this out to you. They don't actually believe in self-salvation. None of them believes that, and I don't believe that they do. But I sure do wish they'd do a little bit of study and, and ask the Spirit to reveal this instead of being disingenuous about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it because they do not see the end of their belief. The end of their belief is what we call theological dead end. It ends up in man saving himself. They don't believe it, but that's where their doctrine takes them. Now, so if you believe this, you end up with man-made salvation. God awakens you. He creates the desire. What's going to happen to you next? You know what happened to Adam? God woke Adam up after he sinned. And you know what Adam did? The first thing he set out to do was start sewing fig leaves together, trying to cover up his nakedness. 
And that's what people do. They figure out, how am I going to get me to there? What am I going to do to do that? And so Adam sewed the fig leaves together to try to make himself righteous or cover up the sin that he had in front of God. But you know what God did? God took animals and slew them and clothed them. And do you know that is the very first picture that we have in all of the Bible of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Someone had to die. Something had to die in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So God has to make the sacrifice. God's the one who covers our sin because we are under the eternal damnation of God. We're under the justice of God. So God awakens the sinner to his condition. He creates the desire for salvation. And then he reveals Christ to him. And that's the only way that you'll ever come. It's the only way you'll ever see this. God has to reveal and point out Christ to you. How do I know that's true? Well, I know it's true because... I can survey the landscape of America, and I can see that there are many churches that are preaching about Christ. I can go right over here on Snyder Lane, and there's a church over there. I've never been in it, but I know what's in it. I know in there, there is a crucifix there. There is a depiction of of Jesus supposedly hanging on a cross. Many people walk around with a piece of jewelry around their neck, a cross, but they really don't understand what that cross means. So they wear the cross, they see the cross, they hear all about Christ, but it doesn't make any difference in their lives. Why? Why doesn't it? Because Christ hasn't been revealed to them. The meaning of the cross is not there. They don't understand what Christ did. They don't understand how God sacrificed Christ to bring us to him. They don't know about that. They don't understand it because it's not been revealed. Now, you tell me then how that all these people can see and hear about the things of Christ and still people die and go to hell. How does that happen? I mean, how does throwing the gospel out there to people and say, take it or leave it, you choose, do whatever you want to do with it, take it or leave it, how's that going to help them? Why do some people believe and some people don't believe? It's the same cross and it's the same Christ. Why do some believe and some don't believe? Here's the whole secret to the thing. Christ is revealed. It's not until Christ is revealed that people believe it. And who does it? God does it. He starts it from the very beginning. God's working. He's in the beginning. Uh, He's performing to reveal Christ so that people come to the place that they understand what the cross means, what Jesus did there, and what, what I am, and what I have to do to be saved. So take it or leave it, that's never going to help anybody because if it's left up to you, you would always leave it. You'll never take it. Only God can cause you to do that. So here we are. This is the teaching of this verse. God is always first, center, last. God is through and through with our salvation, and none of it is left up to us. So Paul never says, look what I did. He never says, look what you did. One Baptist preacher right here in town said, thank God you had the good sense to believe. And the apostle Paul said, thank God that he began a work in you. And he will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I have a lot more to say about this subject, as you well can imagine. Uh, we've got a couple more weeks that we're going to talk about. We're going to discuss some more. But, but all of us ought to see that God has provided a wonderful salvation. I am so thankful none of it depends on me. I don't look to me because it's God who awakened me. God created the desire in me. And it's God who revealed Christ to me. First, last, and always. It's always God. And my confidence is in him. My confidence is never in me. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, for this great verse that we read in Philippians. Help us to understand very clearly that, that all of this salvation, first, last, and always, belongs to you. You started the work, you finish it. And Lord, we're thankful that you are performing in your people even at this very hour that we continue on, that we persevere in our salvation. It's all because of you. We thank you for that. Blessing this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.